if you've um, if you've if you've been around this church for a while, you'll probably know that um, sometime during the morning, baskets like right now, baskets get passed around. If you're new or visiting, just ignore those, just pass them by. Um, but we felt like the Lord spoke to us a few years ago and said uh, that He wanted us to give away everything that went into the baskets, everything that went into the offering baskets. And um, everyone in this church is very generous. You all give very generously of your time, your energy, and your money. Um, and most of you give directly through sort of direct debit standing order and stuff like that. But we felt like God said, everything that goes into the offering baskets, we should give away. And so we've been doing that for the last uh, three, four years, um, blessing different organizations and different people around the world. And last term we were giving to the Lunchbowl Network in Kenya. And, and this term we're giving it to an organization, all the money that goes into the offering baskets over the course of this term, we're giving to um, an organization called uh, 4220. And um, we've talked a little bit about this, but we thought it'd be good to hear a little bit more about 4220. So um, would you give a warm welcome to James Barber, who is going to tell us a little bit more about it. This is James. Um, Hello, good morning. Thank you, James. Now, 4220, they support um, Bible translation, I think, is that That's right? right? Which yep. is lovely and fantastic, but hasn't the Bible kind of been translated? I thought it had been translated into every tongue and nation and tribe and... Yeah, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? Um, well, I guess the short answer is no, it's not been translated to every tongue yet. Um, I don't know um, about you, before I heard about and got interested in Bible translation, if you'd asked me how many languages in the world existed, I'd have probably thought, well, roughly the same number of countries, maybe twice that, I don't know, maybe 400. Turns out there's actually um, 7,300 or more languages spoken in the world today, um, which is huge. Um, and, and of the people who live in the world, actually a fifth of them um, don't have access to the whole Bible in their own language. Why is that important? Well, people who are kind of interested in this stuff um, feel that God really likes to show his love for people by giving them his word in a language that really meets them in their heart their heart language or their mother tongue. So that's a language like your mum or your dad spoke to you as you grew up that really communicates most deeply and in a most heartfelt way to you. And so the need is pretty great. And um, in terms of, I said, a fifth of the world actually don't have the Bible in, in a language they can understand. Um, unfortunately, out of those 7,300 languages, it's not just a fifth that needs to be translated to reach that fifth of the world's population. It's actually more like 90% of those languages. So there's only 700 languages with a whole Bible in the world. Wow. Um, so there's quite a big task in front of us. Okay, that's great. So 4020, um, what do they do? I mean, we love people, we love the Bible. What are they doing to kind of help and advance that? Yeah. So, so 4220 um, and, and most organizations interested in Bible translation would say the best way to translate the Bible accurately is to give people who are translating it access to the original languages. So for the Old Testament, that's mainly Hebrew, and for the New Testament, that's Greek, ancient Greek. So what 4220 are doing is um, they actually run an intensive, eight-month-long, um, immersive Hebrew training school in Israel. So the language that you end up speaking day and night with all of your classmates uh, is Hebrew. And modern Hebrew is close enough to biblical Hebrew that it's, it, it gives you a real good basis and grounding for then going home to your people group and translating the Bible uh, wow. into your tongue. Wow, brilliant. 
and how are we getting involved and what is it that we're hoping to do? Cool. So, um, I, I mean, like you said, we're giving from the offering and mm-hmm. really grateful that, that you've chosen 4220 to, to give to to help that. Um, so far, it's trained up, I'll just take a little diversion, we've trained up uh, 73 uh, students, and they're uh, as of June this year, and they're going to go back to translate the Bible in, into their languages and to help others as well in local na- languages. So, so actually, that that cohort, those three cohorts that they've had so far, are going to touch about 153 languages. So that's amazing. Um, my wife and I made a choice personally that we would uh, sponsor s- somebody every month, and um, you know, I- I'd invite any of you who are interested to kind of join with me, and maybe we can together like sponsor a whole student studies for eight months of, of every year. That would be quite fun. So, so if anyone wants to join with us, that would be super. Um, but as a church, as we've said, we're already giving from the monthly offering, so that's great. Brilliant. So this is kind of part of, you know, we're trying to get the Bible um, front and center. We believe in the Bible, we love the Bible, and we want to support anything that's getting the Bible translated. Um, so we're coming to the end of our series on the Bible, the story of the Bible that we've been doing um, over the last few weeks. And um, we've asked James to preach next week. Um, give us a bit of a... Headline? I mean, you probably haven't prepared it yet, but like, give us a, a bit of an outline as to what, you're, you? <laughs> what, you're, um, what you're thinking. I don't know how you guessed. Um, yeah, it's, um, if you had to give it a title, I'd call it Psalm 19 uh-huh. and the whole Bible for the whole world. Okay. So, so, yeah, that would be fun. Brilliant. Jane. In the meantime, if anyone wants to find out a little bit more about 4020, yeah. um, you can go to um, this website, um, which is tellthewholestory.bible. So oh. go www.tellthewholestory.bible if you just want to find out a bit more about that charity and the work they're doing. Fantastic. James, thank you so much. Thank you. That's brilliant. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, turn me to Revelation chapter 21. <laughs> I know. Uh, um, okay, so we're finishing up the series that we've been doing over the past few weeks on the story of the Bible. Uh, we began by looking at uh, creation and you know how the kingdom, uh, how the kingdom begins, how the whole thing gets underway. Then we looked at the fall, where the whole thing basically falls um, apart, where the kingdom rebels. Then we took a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament. We started in Genesis uh, chapter 12, uh, where the kingdom is, you know, God's trying to get the kingdom off the ground again, and the kingdom begins again. Then we looked at Jesus, where the king comes with his kingdom. Uh, last week, Mike smashed it. Um, uh, he stepped in for me uh, last minute and um, did a far better job than I ever could have done, uh, so much so that he's now ill. Um, <laughs> and uh, he smashed it. He talks about the church and the way that the kingdom of God is extended in and through the church. And then today we reach the sort of climax, I guess. We turn, um, we turn our attention to new creation where the where Jesus comes back, the king comes back, the king returns to rule and to reign, and our sort of our collective and our individual stories reach, um, reach their climax. Now, uh, you, you know, you're reading the story of the Bible, it can be argued, you know, that um, the story of the Bible is a bit of a tragedy, a bit of a travesty in lots of ways. You know, by chapter three, it's all fallen apart. But the end of the story is anything um, but tragic. So with that in mind, let's uh, have a look at Revelation. But again, just to recap, um, and I really want to just keep recapping because I want to drill in to us all this, this narrative arc of the scriptures and not take for granted that we actually 
know the whole story of the Bible, and so I'm just keeping laboring this whole narrative arc, and I'm sorry, but there's a purpose to that. And um, over these past few weeks, what we've seen, we've seen how God establishes this kingdom in creation. He, he uh, creates humanity, and he makes us in his image, and he creates us so that with the intention that we might share in and co-rule and co-reign with him um, over this good wonderful world that he's created and the world that God created is good it's not perfect by any means but it is good um, and uh, there's this cultural mandate that comes out of that, so that and we're, um, we're to be stewards and um, one of the things that we're looking at this evening this evening we've got the evening service um, happening here at six o'clock and one of the things that we're having a conversation around this evening is the church's engagement with the environment and we'll be looking at what is our individual and corporate responsibility to the environment, to this good world that God um, created. And so God creates a, a humanity to co-rule and to co-reign with him and, and steward the, uh, this good world. Uh, however, as we know by Genesis chapter 3, humanity stuff up. They rebel against the king. They decide that they want to pursue their own kingdom on their own terms. But... Again, we saw this is very much a story and a narrative around relationship, and God isn't wanting to give up uh, on the earth. He's not wanting to give up on his relationship uh, with us and with the world. And so what he does is he chooses to work uh, through people. He works, chooses to work through people like us. Um, it starts off with people like Abraham and his descendants, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Israel, and he wants to bring them into restoring the kingdom and uh, starting again. But again, as we know from reading the story, just like Adam and Eve, um, Israel kind of stuff it all up. It's all a bit of a car crash. Um, and that keeps kind of happening right throughout the Old Testament, basically, until Jesus comes. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and Jesus succeeds where Adam and Eve and Israel, as well as you and I, he succeeds where all of us have failed and God's kingdom is actually inaugurated um, once again and, and, and then what we see in the narrative arc of the scriptures is how this plan that God has to spread uh, the kingdom, the kingdom shalom, you know, and when we're talking about kingdom shalom we're talking not about just, you know, getting the gospel into people and converting people, we're talking about um, flourishing and thriving and the goodness, the restoration of the goodness that God intended for the and purposed for the earth but God's plan was that that shalom, that thriving, that flourishing, that well-being would be extended in and through the church, in and through you and I. And that's the bit of the story that we find ourselves living in. That's, we're in the church age. But of course, the story has to have an ending, and that's where we're kind of getting to this morning. And so we turn to Revelation. Now, if you've ever read Revelation... It is quite possibly one of the strangest books in the Bible, which is saying something because some of them are pretty strange. Uh, Revelation is, is right out there. When I first became a Christian at the ripe old age of 15, for some reason, um, it was the first book of the Bible I ever read. Um, I became a little bit obsessed with it. And uh, I, I wouldn't recommend that. If you're new to faith and you're thinking, where shall I start with the Bible? I wouldn't suggest you start with Revelation. Um, it was back in the days for me, none of you will probably know this, but it was back in the days for me, um, uh, a chap called Hal Lindsay, he wrote a book called Late Great Planet Earth. That was uh, doing the rounds. 
Um, Larry Norman's song, you know, I wish we'd all been ready, was still very popular. Um, Larry Norman's song was a, a song, that, um, a Christian song about the rapture, basically, and it had lyrics like, you know, a man and wife are sleeping in bed, she hears a noise and turns her head, he's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Uh, and it was terrifying, basically. Um, and there's a whole load of those things, you know, about people walking up and down hills. And um, it was the 70s. And, uh, um, you know, there was a lot of kind of really apocalyptic and intense theories knocking about about who the Antichrist really was, you know. And it kind of ranged from the Pope to the President of the Soviet Union to the President of the United States and kind of anyone in between. Um, I don't know whether it's because I, maybe it's because I grew up under the threat of nuclear war um, and Armageddon. That was kind of like a pretty strong motif throughout my youth. We, we grew up watching films like Threads and When the Wind Blows and the campaign for nuclear disarmament was very strong. We had Green and Common and Trident and all those sorts of cheery things that um, give teenagers something to kind of rail against and fight against. But, it was a kind of pretty apocalyptic time, sort of as coming, the Cold War was sort of still there, but coming to the end. And it was really, I think, against that backdrop that I found myself deep in the book of Revelation anyway. Revelation is, is this book. It's written by a, cap, a chap called uh, John. He's one of Jesus' disciples. Um, and at this point in the story, he's been um, exiled. He's sort of cast away like to, a, to an island um, called Patmos. And he's writing to this small community of believers in Asia Minor. And this small community of believers, they are suffering terribly under Roman persecution and oppression. They're really, really getting it in the neck. And for this small group of persecuted followers of Jesus, you know, they're looking at the world and they're just going, the world is just falling apart. It is terrifying. It's evil and it's scary. And we are trying to hold on to our faith in Jesus, but we feel pretty much like we've been abandoned and left alone and anyway John's on his island and while he's on this island he has this incredible vision he has this revelation and the revelation is is most specifically about and revelation is actually mostly about the persecution that the church is facing at the time and then there's a little bit in there about the ultimate faith fate of uh, the cosmos and as John writes to them what he does is he kind of unpacks this idea that, that behind this empire of oppression and cruelty that they are um, suffering under, that's literally looming over the first century church and squashing them, is this figure called um, Satan. And it's the original talking snake we, we met in the opening chapters of Genesis chapter 3, who quite literally led Adam and Eve up the garden path in the first place. And, and for John... This little church in Asia Minor um, has found itself, is, 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 is slap bang in the middle of this cosmic spiritual battle that has been raging and is as old as the universe um, itself. And to these, imagine these poor folk, you know, these terrified, they're beaten and oppressed, followers of Jesus. They get this letter of revelation from John, which says... Um, hang in there basically right this is the end of the story evil will not win evil will not win out jesus will triumph the lamb wins and that's the message of revelation so with that said let's have a look at revelation um, 21 where jesus ultimate victory comes to fruition
the force is strong with that one. <laughs> this is just like feedback from the sound desk, like um, you're just commenting on, okay, this is a duff bit. <laughs> we'll just, oh, it was Freya. Well done, Freya. We love Freya. She can do whatever she likes. <laughs> Meanwhile. Um, <laughs> okay, verse 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Let's skip down to verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no more night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nothing, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Kate and I read that over Linda. just before she died, and uh, she was so excited. She was so excited about what lay in store. Linda was one of our colleagues who died a few years ago. And, uh, forgive me. And then turn over to chapter 22, beginning verse 3. No longer, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get through any of this. No longer will there be any curse. Go back to Genesis and think of the curse and, and how... The curse has now been wiped away and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. These, first, these last uh, two chapters of the scriptures, they're just this incredibly beautiful and um, deeply uh, poignant illustration of um, all that is yet to come of this world restored to the goodness of the garden it's brimming with uh, potential and humanity gets to co-reign and rule with God and we live in God's presence forever and it's everything is back as it was supposed to be back from uh, Genesis 1 and there will be no more suffering and there'll be no more evil and there's no more pain and there's no more death those things have been defeated and and this idea is of recreation, not just in Revelation, you just get hints of it all the way throughout the, the biblical narrative. Um, Isaiah chapter 65, um, have a look at that. Um, and if you remember, but the nation of Israel 
They've ended up being sent into exile, and, and during the time that they're in exile, God raises up this prophet Isaiah, and he speaks of this coming Messiah, but he also beyond, points beyond that. Not only does he speak about the coming Messiah, but he talks about the ultimate ending of the whole biblical story. And he wrote this like 800 years or so before Jesus, Isaiah 65, starting in 7, 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jer Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and they will eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children due to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. I don't know about you, but that makes my heart sitting it fills my heart with hope and with joy it's what my heart i think it's what our hearts yearn for and um uh, the restoration of the whole world it's deep in us it's so deep this this desire and this yearning and this longing that things would be back to their original plan, the way God originally designed it, and there would be no more sadness, and there'd be no more suffering, and there'd be no more pain, and there'd be no more death. This motive of recreation, it carries on all the way throughout the New Testament. I'm so sorry. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I love it. It's nothing. It's nothing better than this. You know, it's just like awesome snot on stage. <laughs> and no tissue. But anyway, um, to Peter, <laughs> it says, oh gosh. Um, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Yes, we are. Uh, in Acts, Luke says, heaven must receive him until the time for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his pro pro prophets. This is kind of illustrated all the way through and then you've got this this thing with revelation and revelation gets really misread because even though this vision of new creation is is in the sort of climactic ending in the in, in the book of revelation that most of revelation isn't actually about that at all right and it, it kind of all gets taken out of context but what it does give us is it gives us this glimpse into god's purposes throughout history all of which Everything has been working and pointing towards this incredible ultimate climactic conclusion. And for us in the church, we're, like, we're looking forward to that hope, but we're like, how the heck do we get there? We're in this, like that little church in Asia Minor going, the world is an evil and scary and terrifying place, and it's hard for me to keep hope in the midst of it. And, and again, I'm sorry to do this to you, but just let's recap over the whole narrative arc of Scripture 
just so that we've really got it deeply embedded in us. The whole story opens with God. And the thing about God is, God, you're so kind. What is it? A bog roll or something? <laughs> Could you just turn me down for a second while I... Alex. And I will be even more undignified than this. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to dance around in an ethos. You're okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Uh, so the whole story opens with God. Now, what's fascinating, I think, this is just needs a little bit of thought, but God is um, utterly perfect in his character. And as far as his, his nature and his character goes, God is um, unchanging, right? Uh, and uh, that's, that's the case from right from the get-go, right? He doesn't change in terms of his nature and his character. But that said, when you look at the narrative arc of the scriptures, God goes on a journey, right? God himself, and sometimes we wrestle with this. It's like, how is that possible? You know, it's God, God doesn't change, right? God goes on this, there's an arc if you look at the scriptures, and God goes on that journey. And the, the drama of the narrative of the scriptures is that we're looking at it and we're like, how is God, perfect in nature, unchanging this character, going to respond to all of this constant kind of changing and messing around and, 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 and opposition that he's facing? And, and the drama of the scripture for us is that we are rooting for God, that somehow God is going to win out and that the deepest yearnings of our heart that the natural order of things will be restored will actually come about. And so Genesis 1, we've got God crafting and creating order um, and the, the, the cosmos out of chaos. And, and then he creates humankind in his image, in relationship with him, to share in his rule and his reign of this good and wonderful world. But this whole idealistic scene just um, very quickly falls into conflict and brokenness and the kingdom Rebel, rebels, and um, it becomes clear right from the beginning that God isn't always going to get his way. Things aren't always going to go quite according to his plan. So in Genesis 3, he's having to already rewrite the plan a little bit because like, oh, okay, that happened. Now what do we do? And you look through the scriptures and it just becomes increasingly frustrating. There's just frustration after frustration after frustration as it spirals down and down and further and further and further away from the original plan that God had in mind. But even from these seeming moments of decline, God responds, and he always responds in accordance with his unchanging nature and his unchanging character. And he promises one who will come. Uh, he says that uh, one will come, a son of Eve, who will crush the head of the snake and will overcome the ultimate enemy, even death himself. And so even from these moments of decline into further decline, we see God shifting and adapting and intervening and weaving this constantly redemptive narrative all the way through the scriptures. And you read the scriptures and you see this redemptive hermeneutic working its way and unfolding all the way through. And it's moving and it's constantly moving and heading towards um, its climactic conclusion. So God, as we know, he focuses on a character called Abraham and he promises that through his descendants this redeemer um, king is going to come and that the good world that we saw at the beginning of the story is going to be recreated and reestablished through this king. And we know that Abraham and his descendants and, and this long line of kings that follows, they, none of them show any signs of being the snake crusher promised in Genesis 
three and, and then we see them all and maybe we, like David, David's like the first glimmer of hope I think and we look at David and it's like okay this guy's pretty awesome you know he, he's like he like, writes songs and he's like you know he's got a good voice and, and, and stuff like that maybe it's maybe it's him he seems like a, a sweet chap and he does random things like dances around naked but we'll forgive him for that and um, he you know he could be the guy um, he maybe he's the one who's going to restore Shalom maybe he's the one that everyone's been talking about and, and then we discover that actually David's an adulterer and a murderer and so we realize quite quickly that it probably isn't going to be him after all which is a bit of a letdown and then you get to the next guy and we're like, the next king we're like, okay great well he looks like he's interesting he looks quite nice and and then he stuffs it up and it's like okay well it wasn't him then the next one comes along and it's like he's a psychopath and so like, it's not going to be him so uh and it goes on and on throughout the story and it's just these car crashes of kings and Things go so bad that the whole nation of Israel, as you know, ends up in exile, ends up in decline. The Babylonian, they were just a horrific, oppressive uh, nation come in and stomp all over Israel. Uh, Israel's in exile. They're sent away from their nation. They're sent away from their home. There's no kingdom. There's no king. The plan looks like it's completely and utterly failed. And, and you've got this season of utter hopelessness, really. And then it's during that season that this weird bunch of, of people appear called the prophets, um, and they haven't given up hope on this idea of a coming king who is going to restore the world to God's original vision of this garden brimming with potential and, and all of which will be shared with um, humanity. Then we get to the New Testament, and the New Testament opens by introducing us to our real hero in a brand new way. We, we get to meet the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and but he's not this glorious king. You know, he's not a bronzed warrior. He's like a refugee baby. He's like a, a peasant from some backwater called Nazareth. And not quite what we had hoped for. He doesn't look like we expected him to. And we start to follow his life and we begin to see that actually this guy is awesome in every single way. And he totally fits the bill. Um, but even Jesus ends up being despised and rejected and ultimately finds himself being executed by the Romans um, uh, as being a common criminal. And we're reading this story and we're thinking, oh my gosh, I thought he was the one and now he's dead. Um, I have no idea how this is going to work out. And of course, the story doesn't end there. Jesus then defeats death itself and is victorious on this cosmic scale and foreshadowing the resurrection of all of the dead, Jesus is resurrected from the dead and demonstrates once and for all his authority and his power over death itself, the final um, enemy. And, and the story reaches its conclusion when our hero, King Jesus, will come back, when he will return and he will restore the goodness of the garden, which is where our story all began. It begins in a garden and it ends in a city, but once and for all he will defeat not only the snake, but even death itself. And, and then Jesus is reunited with his first love, and his first love is his church, his bride, it's you and me, and he's united with us here on earth in a creation made near. And you know the Bible, whatever you think about the Bible, the Bible is nothing less than the greatest love story ever written. It's just a love story from beginning to end. It's interesting in Revelation, it never actually talks about God's people being suddenly, you know, like teleported or transported out of this world, you know, to live in some kind of spiritual existence, like on a cloud somewhere. Um, we've talked about this before, but that's a very modern concept of the future and about 
our idea of life after death. The Bible tells a very different story. Um, one anti-scholar uh, anti anti uh, describes as life after life after death. And what we often think of as heaven is not actually the end of our story. The end of our story is where this world is made new and we live in it with God in actual physical bodies like these but new and improved. Praise Jesus. <laughs> As one writer puts it, John's, John's depiction of salvation is not one of escape from earth into a spiritualized heaven where humans should dwell forever. Instead, John is shown and then shows us in turn that salvation, salvation is the restoration of God's creation on a new earth. In this restored world, the redeemed of God will live in resurrected bodies with a renewed creation from which sin and its effects have been expunged. This is the kingdom that Christ followers have already begun to enjoy and foretaste. Now they're not yet the kingdom. So if we think of our role in creation as being one that ends up with us escaping to heaven, this notion of heaven, it kind of makes the whole biblical narrative nonsensical. If our, if our hope in the future is just to teleport somewhere else, um, then we're really not reading our Bibles right, because that's not where the story goes. That's not how the story ends. Now, there's a whole load of debate around the exact timing and sequence of events, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, rapture, blah, 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 blah tribulation, pre-trib, post-trib, blah. Anyway, park all of that. God bless Tim LaHaye or whatever his name was. But pretty much everyone agrees on these kind of key elements. And the key elements are Jesus' return, the resurrection of the dead, judgment, and new creation. They're the kind of four key elements that everyone agrees on. So as promised, Jesus will return. The snake-crushing king will return. Jesus will come back. And just like Jesus every one of us will be raised from the dead, resurrected from the dead, right? And then Jesus will judge the world, which sounds awesome to a very few, mostly religious and very strange people, and terrifying, if we're honest, to the rest of us. And the truth be told, um, many of us, myself included, uh, are uncomfortable imagining this day of judgment. Um, but it's, the trouble with it is, it's pretty clearly stated a whole bunch of times by Jesus himself. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That's going to be fun, right? Like, I'm looking forward to that. I've already, it's like 10 to 12. I've amassed a fair few empty words just in the few hours I've been awake today. Um, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, we, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, drive out many demons and in your name, perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Uh, away from me, you evildoers. Well, that's exciting. That's something I look forward to. Now, I'm not entirely sure that what the Bible writers have in mind when they talk about judgment is necessarily the same, same thing that comes to our mind. 
In my mind, I picture Jesus like a high court judge, probably out of like a Dickensian novel, um, very, very high up on a very, very high up stage, dais, judgment thing, bench. Um, it's kind of like the Old Bailey, but much, much bigger, and there are lots more people. And I am in the dock, and I'm very, very small, and not a little terrified, as every single misdemeanor, bad thought, and sinful deed is made public, and you are all there, uh, mostly gasping in horror, saying, I knew it. <laughs> I, always saw, I always thought it. It's true. It's worse than we thought yours. It's kind of basically the stuff of nightmares uh, from which you wake up in a cold sweat and you're very grateful for the fact that it is only just a dream. Now, I have no idea what it will actually be like. I hope it's nothing like that. But in Hebrew thought, judgment is actually much more than the simple sort of courtroom paradigm that we've latched onto and dominates much of our thinking. Judgment is actually the restoration of shalom. Judgment is the restoration of shalom, and shalom is this idea of goodness and wholeness and peace and completion, and, and destruction, which is another challenging motif, is, is, is actually much more than um, punishment. It's the eradication of evil from God's now beautiful and perfect world. But the central idea in Revelation that we really need to kind of latch onto is that this world will not be destroyed. It is, it's still prevalent in a lot of evangelical thinking that this world will be destroyed and there will have no duty or care to it. That is not sound biblical theology. Um, it will not be made again from scratch. It will be restored. And that's a very important distinction because it carries with it this whole idea of continuity and familiarity with all that we love that is good about this world, because that points towards all that we know that is going to be good in the age uh, to come. And so rather than some incomprehensible world, you know, clouds and harps and angels and endless hymns and church services in the sky that are just are interminable, um, we are meant to, we are going to enjoy God to the full. We are going to live life to the full in God's good creation. So when God set out to deal with sin and with all the ruinous consequences, he set out to destroy the enemy of creation, not to destroy creation. Creation will be redeemed, and this restoration and redemption will be total and utter. The whole of uh, humanity and creation itself will be freed from evil and suffering and death, and every wrong will be undone, and that's done in, it's in human terms, it's in the physical, it's in spiritual terms, it's in the environment, it's in the animal kingdom, everything and everywhere. And it's this comprehensive redemption that reminds us of the story that we find ourselves in. You know, now more than ever, it's so easy for us to make um, our faith individualistic, we, to make salvation individualistic. It's all about me, you know. Um, uh, we, get, we get separated from the, the full creation and relational context that actually is what salvation is all about. And so we make the whole biblical narrative all about me and Jesus. And it's like me and Jesus. And it's like me and my salvation and me and my healing and me and my life with Jesus in heaven. 
And God is saying, no, 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 it's, it's, it's that, and it's much bigger than that. God has desired and intends to save and to restore not only me, but the whole of creation, the entirety of creation itself. And this redemption, what it means is, it means that the cultural mandate that we got in Genesis chapter 1, it means that that cultural mandate carries on. This redemptive hermeneutic continues and will continue in the ages to come. It doesn't all just stop so that we can hang around on clouds, you know, together forever and ever. Amen. We all get to continue into eternity in the work of stewarding and developing and initiating the world as God sees fit. Um, Only now what we're going to be doing, in the future what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing it on the earth and on an earth that is released from all of the bondages of sin and evil and pain and suffering and death. And all of that sounds like pretty, pretty awesome to me. We get to continue to work on that cultural mandate, that redemptive hermeneutic is going to carry on, not just for while we're here on earth, but that stewardship and that development and the initiative and the project and the entrepreneurialism and the creativity all gets to just carry on and on and on and on and on and on forever in eternity. Okay, settle in. I'm nowhere near done. But right now, we live in this part of the story where this is all yet to come, and we still have to face the final and most terrible of all of God's enemies, and that is death. Death, death removes us from uh, the story. Death um, takes us out before the story realizes um, uh, its resolution. And according to the scriptures, you know, death comes with the fall, uh, and, and it's a reality. So for now, we will all die. But as followers of Jesus, you know, we entirely, we commit ourselves entirely, and we're flawed, and we're messy, and we're screwed up, but we entrust ourselves into the hands of the one who has conquered death. Because it's only in Jesus that our hopes for human history and for the whole world and for ourselves um, uh, and for the people that we love. It's only in Jesus that these hopes will be brought together in the future unveiling of God's coming kingdom. And so we can look ahead to the future and not think about an empty void, you know, or, or just the darkness and, and annihilation of death and, or some unimaginable utopia in, in which we think we'll, we'll be bored and we'll actually never have a part. When we look to the future, we are to put our hope in the return of the king, the day when evil and suffering and death will be defeated together forever. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, death is swallowed up in victory because death is always the work of the enemy. Always the work of the enemy. And Satan, in the words of Jesus, he comes to steal and to kill and to rob and destroy. He is the one who brings us death. Ever since... Genesis 3, the wages of sin has been death, and um, most of us have walked, you know, with death, you know, in ways big and small, you know, maybe that we've been dragged over the broken glass of horrific tragedy in our lives, or maybe we've been fortunate and we've only scraped our knees or broken our bones, but um, every single one of us will have had some encounter with death, and... um, these are reminders of our frailty. Uh, there are reminders that we are perishable, that there are reminders, brutal reminders, that one day um, our eyes will go dark and we too will die. Um, 
But you know, there's something about death uh, that is so counter to God's original intention, his original design. Um, there is something so wrong about death, uh, and it affects us all. Whether we believe in God or not, it affect, death affects us on a very primal and visceral level. Um, and I think that so much of the grief that we experience at the death of a loved one is, I believe, a, a righteous anger. It's a righteous indignation at the injustice and the cruelty of a thing that was never meant to be. It was never, ever part of God's design. And I just want to remind us all, you know, that death is never part of God's plan. It was never, it's never God's will. It's not his intent. It is not his best. Um, for the followers of Jesus, death is the enemy. Death is uh, an enemy whose affliction and the pain and the sorrow that comes in its wake, they defy God. Death always happens against God's will and is always in rebellion and defiance of God's will. But that will not continue for long. It will not continue for long. Take heart. The man wins. It's the same with suffering. Most of us have walked with suffering in ways big and small, whether it's through sickness or sadness or loss or brokenness or illness or broken marriages or we suffer there's so much suffering in the world but have courage and take heart it's not for long soon death and all his friends they will be swallowed up for good and no longer will we have to live under the weight of suffering and despair no longer we have to try and make sense of a world where human trafficking and human slavery and child exploitation and abuse in all its forms and violence and injustice and destruction and despair seem to rule and reign. Um, there is coming a day when Jesus, the serpent-crushing king of the world, will say, no more of this. No more of this. And far more than just some escape to the clouds, God's ultimate end is the complete and utter undoing of every wrong and every evil. God's ultimate purpose in creation is that the world, once created good, will be utterly restored to goodness. Uh, it will be a place where our hearts cry, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is fully answered and is answered in full. The, the story of the Bible ends with this picture of the final perfection of all of human striving towards beauty and truth and goodness and a picture of a world where he wipes every tear from our eyes, where there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. Where every one of us will see God face to face and we will see him in full and we will see that we are his and that he is ours. And and this vision, this hope that comes from this letter from a Mediterranean island in the sun to this poor church in Asia Minor um, is to give us hope, actually. And uh, it's an invitation that gets extended for, that we might become responsible actors in God's story, not just a passive audience. 
you know, where we become actually no longer capable. It's beyond the possibility, the realms of possibility that we could run from the responsibilities and the agonies of human life. And, and instead, we are on the forefront. As followers of Jesus, we are on the front lines in the struggle um, against uh, the anguish that human, humanity is, is suffering. And yet, um, we live with this confidence that what gets committed to Jesus will find uh, fulfillment in the final kingdom. And so our, our work now in this church age um, concerns not only the spread of the gospel, you know, and the bringing of others into God's kingdom. It's part of that. But it's so much more than that. We have done God such a disservice by limiting and keeping the concept and the notion of salvation so narrow to a decision about, I've given my life to Jesus in this moment. It's so much more. It's that. It's so much more than that. Uh, it concerns the renewal of culture. It's the cultural mandate. We talked about it in Genesis 1, uh, that open the scriptures to rule and to reign as those who represent God to the world. We become the church. We become the incarnation of the kingdom in the here and now. And we do that in our relational connection with one another, in our ability to, to, to walk in forgiveness towards one another, as we love our neighbors, as we love our enemies, as we fight for justice, as we wage peace. God has designed the body of Christ, us as individuals and corporately, the church to be an instrument of renewal and reconciliation in the world. That's our mandate. And no, we can never usher in the completion of God's kingdom ourselves. Only the return of Jesus can never bring that about. Even so, our obedience in the here and now matters. Our efforts and our worship, these good works, they matter. Our faithfulness to Jesus, it matters. And no, we will not heal every hurt. We won't correct every injustice, nor will we remove every evil, um, but we'll have a flipping good go at it. Um, we are called to become active participants in bringing God's rule and God's reign to earth now. We are ambassadors of the coming kingdom in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. We are to act as a sign that the kingdom of God is already here and that the kingdom of God is also yet to come. There are three, I am going to finish, I promise. There are three um, distinct times in this final chapter of the final book of the Bible, the story of God, where Jesus repeats, I am coming soon. And John ends the letter, ends the Bible itself, with the only appropriate response, which is, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. So, come. That's what we're singing about. Behold, a day is coming. It's a longing and the yearning in our heart. We cry out, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Why don't you stand?